0: Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark.
1: Welcome to the Vet Gurus podcast. It's Brendan here with Mark. It is the weekend. Ending in the 21st of september 2018 and it it is episode 49 mark we are one episode away from the magic 50 and we've had a few entries they're actually pouring in mark the email entries i think i had two yesterday <laughs> so we're, um, we're, we're we're getting entries so you've got a pretty good chance of winning the competition so the competition is send an email to say hello to Mark and myself at vetgurus at gmail.com, at vetgurus at gmail.com. And we will pull the winner out of a hat, Mark, and the winner will receive a no, wonderful well, a prize wonderful of some prize. sort. Do you know what we're going to give them, Mark? Well, it'll be <laughs> can you hear me, Brendan? I can. You're a little bit low, your volume there, Mark, but I can hear you, so
0: I'm sure post-production it will get fixed, so keep talking. Um, It'll be a wonderful prize, Brendan. I'm um, I think we were talking about a print. I've been trying to pick one of the photographs that I've taken and we'll we'll get it framed up and one of our locally, you know, Newcastle endangered species will adorn the wall of the winner of the 50th podcast competition. I think it will be a prize
1: pack, Mark, a prize pack. It'll be more than one um, print in there. It'll be lots of goodies and we will... Ship it at our expense. I can't Somewhere believe out. your generosity. Um, well, you're paying for the shipping,
0: not me, Mark. You can pay for yeah. it. You're the one with all the money. <laughs> yeah. Now all of a sudden I can believe your generosity.
1: <laughs> so, yes, please say hello to us. Um, send an email to us. Say hello, a vet gurus at gmail.com and yes um, we've had a reasonable number i'm um, not just so two i've been a bit silly there um so we will pull the prize out of a hat or a little tub or whatever end up throwing the names into mark and um, we will probably announce it in episode 51 or 52 or maybe even a little bit later because even though it's our 50th episode competition we may give our subscribers and listeners a little bit longer um, to enter mark to maximise the number of people that can enter mark. What have you been up to this week,
0: Brendan? I've had a, a very very busy week, but one of the highlights of my week was um, was travelling with our local bird club. We had a bit of an excursion. It felt a little bit school like, Brendan. It sort of took me back to my school days. And um, was on Sunday, and we went out to Mangula Coal Mine. Uh, which is just um, its a a coal mine that's just out uh, past Musselbrook up here in New South Wales. And like many of the more recent uh, coal mines that have been started, this one started in 2009, um, there's considerable environmental offsets and buffer zones surrounding the mine. And this one is particularly good at... um, it, there's already uh, within a couple of years of starting mining, they were regenerating the the um parts of the mine that had already been eg- exhausted. So um while we're out there, we were able to look at some of the regenerated area that was about six years old. It was a pretty sort of exciting day, Brendan. And did you um did you wear your little
1: birdo hat um as you're as you're out there showing people around? Of course. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I have the whole <laughs> uniform on, Brendan. No, thank
1: you. T- I'm going to jump into a review, Mark. Um, <laughs> I know we haven't rehearsed this as usual, but um, I watched a uh, movie. A couple of days ago, that um, I'm sure you would know about this movie. It's supposed to be a bit of a cult movie, and I just happen stanced across it. Um, I came across it. It's called The Big Year. Do you know that movie, Mark?
0: I am very well acquainted with <laughs> The Big Year, Brendan. <laughs> um,
1: yes, yeah, so I had not watched The Big Year before with um, our, our, our friend Jack Black there and Steve Martin. And um, yeah, I quite enjoyed it. I think it was made a few years ago. I'm just looking up when it was. 2011 um, it was, and it's a a comedy, obviously with Jack Black and Steve Martin in there, and it's about um, and Owen Wilson following
0: uh, Owen Wilson as well.
1: Owen Wilson, yes. So um, three um, very famous comedians, um, and it's following those three on their quest for a big year. And it, um, I thought of you, Mark. Um, for, so the big year being a competition among amongst birders in in the US um, where they try and identify the greatest number of species um, in North America in a calendar year and they follow these three um, people competing against each other or that two of them team up, don't they? I won't, won't give away any spoilers um, about Big Year. I, f- I found it quite interesting. You would have you would have been um, in your element with that one, Mark, watching the I, Big I, Year. You've I, probably watched it 10 times already, have you?
0: I thought it was a documentary. i bet you did so (laughs) are
1: you planning on a big year
0: every year is a big year (laughs) every year do you know i've got to tell you a quick story now that we've had a score but um one of the interesting because the big year is an actual it's not just like a movie thing it is a real thing The, the twitchers in north america actually compete well fairly aggressively for um for um, the title of um, the most birds uh, viewed or heard in a single year. Um, and about three years ago, um, uh, John Weigel, um, who is the owner of one of the people who owned the reptile park, the Australian reptile park in uh, Gosford on the central coast, um, he smashed the record by something like 40 birds Um, He was like a man on a mission for that year, Um, and uh, the sponsorship for his big year in North America um, uh, financed the first stages of the Devil Ark project in the Barrington Tops, and um, yeah, so he sort of switched his focus from reptiles to birds, and he's become one of the world's premier birders, it's just teaching those Americans what uh, dedication and and uh, attention to detail can do if you really put your mind to it.
1: Yes, I um, you are correct there, Mark, because in my little internet search as you were speaking there, um, the ABA, the American Birding Association, big year record was obviously set by John Weigel uh, um, of Australia in 2016, and his number of species recorded in that year was 836, Mark. So, yes, he did excellent there. Now, tell me, is it correct, uh, watching the film, and obviously you're calling it a documentary, <laughs> um, is it an honour system still? Yes, in that, that, yes so for is. So for listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, <laughs> um, can you explain what, just briefly what it is. What do you do? And how do you record the species you see?
0: I think <laughs> I think of it as, um, uh, it, you know, the sort of bird watching I do, by comparison, is, is low energy. I know that comes as a surprise to you, Brendan, but I sort of take my time and I'm happy to watch a bird, you know, f- for a few days sometimes. But um Twitchers and uh, big ear people, it's it's a race. It is literally a race, and they uh, accrue a list. Um, they uh, they literally write a list down. They have to um, hear or see the bird, um, and um, and it's an honor system. So um, you uh, don't have to have a photo. The proof is, your your word is the proof. Um, And so it does leave the, you can see the dramatic, the chasm in which some drama and comedy could arise in this system, I think, Brendan. So you don't have to see the bird. So if you just hear the bird, you have to
1: obviously be in the location where the bird is, and not just play a whole lot of recordings <laughs> of birds and and tick off a, a few extra numbers on your list. Oh, um, you
0: beat that, that's have playback, Brendan. Playback is heavily frowned upon. Yes, <laughs> you can't do. Well,
1: <laughs> I, I'm 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 just I be, I wonder how many people cheat. Mark is my first no, comment with that. Cheats, Brendan. Well, I'm just looking. On Wikipedia here and the world, not, and so the, the one, the big year we were talking about usually is, is, is referring to, to, um, North America, isn't it, Mark? And the, the US and the Canadian, um, provinces and the US states. The world big year record, Mark, and we were just talking about a record being 836 birds. The world big year record is supposedly 6,833 species. Which was also said in 2016 by somebody I cannot pronounce from the Netherlands, yes. Mark. So um, yes, six thousand eight hundred thirty-three species um, sighting or listening. Um,
0: it's really interesting how um, in Amer- this the big year has a big uh, has a long history, and in America I think it. Um, my understanding is that it began, you know, shortly after. America was colonized, and um, wealthy Englishmen would come over and shoot the birds for a year. And they would, you know, have a competition about how many species they could shoot and take back to Britain. And of course, uh, over the years, that particular uh, pastime um, became divided, is the way I think about it. The birds were largely relieved of the shooting, um, and now people shoot at other people. Um but uh, the the list of birds that you can see became the target. And it has a long history in America, but it's recently, like you said, become a worldwide phenomenon and um, Sean Dooley and John Weigel in fact have um, big year records in Australia over the last four or five years. so it's something that's done in Australia.
1: Yes. perhaps Every. you should add it <laughs> add it to. Perhaps you should add it to one of the day um, day trips to a conference, Mark. It can be a, a big day instead of a big year, and you can see how many um, species of bird you can
0: go out and twitch. Well, Brendan, you know, just my, go- my, one of my sayings is that a big year is just made up of 365 big days. That's right. Well, but I'll be.
1: I'll, instead of twitching out there looking at those um, birds, I'll be twitching in the in the bar at the um, hotel. Mark, you can come back and tell me how many, uh, whether you've managed to find ten species or twenty, Mark. Um, so that's my review. The big year. There we go. Didn't give it a small, Brendan. A, a review. Well, interestingly enough, the film um, absolutely. Bombed in the box office market, absolutely flopped. And I think it grossed only, by the look of Wikipedia, grossed only $7 million, US against its $41 million budget. And it is not ranked very highly on um, Rotten Tomatoes or Tomatoes if you're from the US. However, having said that, I enjoyed it, Mark. I enjoyed it. And I was smiling throughout most of the film mainly because i was thinking of you as i was watching it mark out there um up in up, up to your um waist in your waders trying to find some t- um bird that um you could hear calling um so i I'd, I'd give it a, a quite respectable 7.3 and i must admit I, ha- I do have a bit of a soft spot for for a bit of slapstick comedy as you real- as you know mark and um steve martin and his classic films are probably some of my all-time classic uh, movies that I love, Mark. And at some other stage, I will review some of the classic Steve Martin films, Mark, and they will get an even higher score than that. Um, but, yeah, it's a solid, solid, what did I just say, a solid seven point something around Seven uh, point seven three. Po- I think that's a pretty Seven point three. Pretty I have to write that down. Yeah. So there you go. That's my score. What would your score for that film be, Mark?
0: Oh, I I've, I've actually um, I, I know it comes as a big surprise but I largely agree with you I think it's um it was a bit of a flop at the time um, but um but I think it'll be one of those films that's looked back on as um as a uh, as a bit of a yeah cult <laughs> there'll be a whole lot of people with anorex and binoculars. <laughs> who yes. collect the uh, head that evening. Having blocks. said that, Mark, it ain't
1: no Blues Brothers. That's all I can <laughs> say. That's all I can say. Well, let's get on to um, some news stories. But before we do that, I think you wanted to jump into answering a couple of questions from one of our patrons, Sandy, and I think we hinted at that at a previous last week's podcast, Mark. Sandy sent us an email, so he'll be in the running for our competition as well, Mark, and he, um, he had a long list of quite thought-provoking topics to talk about, and I think you wanted to mention a couple of those or at least touch on a couple of them, Mark.
0: I did, Brendan, and you were exactly the, – the, the, one of the things that struck me about Sandy's email was, um, yeah, it was the, the large number of very thought-provoking questions, and, um, and I, while we won't have a chance to go through them all in one uh, podcast, they'll provide fodder. Brendan Fodder for the next few podcasts for us to um to chew over and uh, and uh, um you know uh, offer our opinion on the qu- answers to his questions. So the first one, uh, yes, was uh, probably a little bit of a I don't know. It's a recurring theme uh, amongst the things we talk about, and um, he raised the question that we've talked about four concerning um, the ethics of uh, keeping captive animals all together. So I'll just read a little bit here. Um, I agree with the issues about inadequate care and excessive levels of mortality in captive animals. However, as habitat loss is out of control in this country and around the world, species are crashing, as we regularly say on our news items. Already, many species are only surviving due to the significant numbers held in captivity. Hopefully, this can be reversed. But until then, doing everything we can to keep these captive animals healthy and genetically diverse, whether they are pets or held by small-scale breeders, zoos or wildlife reserves, may be the key to their long-term survival. Um, I... I I, this pays, this, you know, with my visit to Mangula, it was um, it was really interesting to see, um, on a fairly vast scale, how how uh, you know, I've I've had a pretty poor view of rehabilitation and the possibility that uh, that species could be reintroduced to the wild, and I do have particular interest in the orange-bellied. Uh, parrot program and the um, our swift parrots that travel from uh, around here in Newcastle down to Tasmania. Um, but um, to see the work that's done in some of those rehabilitation settings, the the uh, large scale um, rehabilitation work, um, I was uh, to be honest, Brendan, I was a little bit encouraged, and um, and the the. Manner in which they work to uh, not just work with individual species, but um, to build uh, ecosystems. um, uh, I I was really um, impressed, and the scale on which they did um, it—hundreds of acres at a time—was was. was, uh, To be honest, I thought I I wanted to go to this location because of the birds that were there, but um, the visit to see the rehabilitation was um, was a little bit uplifting rather than. Depressing as I thought going to a coal mine would be. Yes. And uh, the difficulty I always find is when, and that's what one of the
1: points that Sandy's mentioning when, or if, or do we end up calling it quits for any of these species? At what point do we decide there's X number of this particular species left? Probably in captivity, um, and do we call it a day, and we spend our money and time and effort somewhere else. Um, and that's the one. I, that's the point I, I always struggle with with um, with these animals, forgetting about the habitat loss um, um, arguments. Um, what's What's your thoughts on? Do Do you have a
0: number, Mark, at which you decide no, it's time to stop, or do we try and fight to the end? Well, I had saw an interesting article which talked about. Um you know in order to provide a physical measure of the shock um, of and the shock of approaching extinction the article suggested that a significant number of the endangered species or um, seriously threatened species um, could physically the entire population of the of a large number of these species could fit inside a a uh, um, the carriage of an, a uh, you know, a train carriage. Um, and uh, in, in the comments to that article, um, it was pointed out that the number of wild orange-bellied parrots wouldn't even half fill a, shop, a plastic shopping bag. Um, that's how close they are to extinction. So I, I agree with you, Brendan. I wonder, particularly using the OBPs as a, uh, an example, um, I do wonder whether and there's just, you know, been recently announced that um there's a new three million dollar um uh, project to expand the number of um breeding aviaries um to supplement the wild population. But like you said, I don't know is that money well spent um on a species that's so close to the brink? Yes. I
1: must admit I'm a bit biased, Mark, because I can remember very vividly uh, when when we tried inadvertently to, to kill off the remaining population of helmeted honey eaters here in Victoria. And at that stage, there were less than 50 of the birds in existence. And at one stage, I had about 12 to 15 of those birds dead in front of me that um, we'd accidentally tried to kill off um, at the zoo that I was working at mark and that was um that was quite an interesting period for those um several weeks when they were accidentally overdosed with vitamin D and uh, every day they were bringing one or two or, or more of these birds into the vet clinic and we were desperately trying to treat them um, but it's a story for another podcast I'll go into that in a little bit more detail at some other stage if Anybody is interested in the in the accidental overdose, um, and these things happen at zoos um, or, or rehabilitation um, places. And one one of the one of the uh, little articles that I've, I will have in an upcoming podcast talks about a disaster that happened in Africa recently with one of the large um, game animals that um, they were trying to trying to protect and they accidentally killed off a whole lot of them as well um but we'll we'll talk about that in in one of the upcoming podcast marks so yeah um it's something i always i always um struggle with um not killing them (laughs) i'm pretty good at killing these animals (laughs) as my record shows um but um at what point do we potentially decide enough is enough and let's spend the money on on something else um Maybe we should be doing that soon with the human species, Mark, and saying enough is them enough. <laughs> let's let's just let them um die out. Um the let's well let's let's answer um talk about Sandy's um next comment or 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 theory or question um next week, Mark, or one of the in the following weeks. We'll slowly work through them, Mark, because we have a couple of news stories before we jump into our our main topic this week. Otherwise, we'll be here all night or morning or or middle of the day, depending on um, when you're listening to this. So I just want to talk about one little um, news story, Mark, and that is the Comedy Wildlife Photography Awards 2018, Mark. um, I think in one of our very early podcasts, we spoke briefly about the 2017 winners and the 2018 finalists are um, up for everybody to see and i'll put that link on our website vetgurus.com and that has the gallery of the 2018 comedy wildlife photography awards and it's a great little competition because not only are these photos amazing and i weep every every photo i look at it um, the quality of them compared with my poor quality pics um, but they are very funny and they also have a Bit of a, um, important part to play in conservation because it is, um, this, um, comedy wildlife photography awards mark is conservation through competition is their sort of tagline and, um, they try and, um, try and, um, push people towards thinking about conservation um, through these funny photos. So I'll put the link there, Mark, and I don't know whether you've looked at the finalists um, yet, but there's some amazing photos there of all sorts of varied species, including a snail. Um, So who knows, a snail may win the comedy wildlife photo awards so yeah i encourage all our listeners to jump over to that um, link which is at vetgurus.com. what's your first story mark it's a little bit of a depressing one isn't it um yes brendan it is.
0: <laughs> as usual <laughs> a um, i was just going to say that i have had a look at um those photographs um and um and I, I'm, I'm going to be a bit controversial about them, Brendan. I don't think they're as funny as they were last year. I think, um, I think that, uh, that um, they're excellent photos, and like you, I'm completely jealous. But um, they, they, I don't think they're quite as hilarious as they once were.
1: I think you're losing your sense of humor what little of it um, I mean. as you age but you may you may be correct there I know last year's were outstanding um, I think the trick with these is linking... An excellent caption with the photograph, and I think that's what that's what makes it even more funny it's if the, the caption story, is excellent. It? Yep, yes, story. that's correct. So, yes. Anyway, we'll see what we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll um, we'll we'll revisit this topic, Mark, when we get back to uh, when they list the winners, Mark. I think that's when we'll go, revisit it, which should happen
0: shortly. So, my, my and um. My story is uh, it is a little bit of a downer, and I apologise for continually returning to these um, slightly, um, you know, depressing topics. But it's a report in the Mother Nature Network about um, the possibility that we're headed to a world, into a world where very shortly we might not have nearly as many turtles as we have now, um, and uh, it quotes new research published in. Um, the journal Bioscience, that uh, that 61% of all modern turtle species are either threatened with extinction or already extinct. Um, they uh, probably represent the most threatened, or at least they're amongst the most threatened animal groups on the earth. Um, and uh, they're, they're, there's... Uh, um, more trouble for our shelled friends than um, in birds, mammals, fish or amphibians as a class. Um, so, And the interesting thing, I suppose, there's two things that strike me. Um, the trouble that they're in is poorly recognised in the general public that um, their struggles and, uh, and difficulty um, are not easily are recognized. And because they're relatively long-lived species, um, there can still be individuals that people will see in the wild, but um, they are probably reaching the point where um, they are not replacing themselves. And the Manning River turtle up here near Newcastle is a, a classic case, one of the turtles that's famous for breathing through its bum, Brendan. And uh, yes. and. Those turtles' uh, recent studies have suggested that for the last couple of years every single nest site along the Manning River has been, um, has been uh, um, predated by foxes and there literally have been no babies for several years. So um, uh, it is a, um, a, a problem that's right across the, the class of animals. And, of course, the other thing is that with um, climate change, the fact that um, uh, particularly for um, many, the sea turtles, but many species of turtles, um, uh, sex determination is done on the basis of temperature. And so slight increases in environmental temperature will will badly skew the um, sex ratios and make breeding even more difficult for uh, particularly many of our sea turtles. Um, researchers suggest that um, uh, that it's likely in, you know, over the next 50 to 100 years, that will lead to a pr- dramatic crash in the population of sea turtles. And, of course, pollution in the ocean. Um, we've actually done a postmortem on one of the turtles um, that uh, succumbed in Lake Macquarie to uh, ingested plastic um, and, uh, and had the... Um, the unhappy task of opening the turtle up and and examining its um its innards and finding uh, plastic bags clogging up its stomach, so so yeah I I, I um think this article um, describes quite well the difficulties that our shelled friends are facing and um and I'm much like. Our orange-bellied parrots, I worry that um, it might only be a few short years and we don't get to see nearly as many of them as we do now, Brendan.
1: Yes, and one of the notes in there is that 2018 study stating that here about half of all sea turtles on Earth have eaten plastic at some point, which... It's all a bit um depressing, Mark. You've got me depressed, but I'm upbeat because my final news story, Mark, we're just gonna throw in one more, um, because we can't let our listeners be as depressed as I feel after you talking about that story, is about the puppy that underwent the world first combination surgery. And it was a dog at the Royal Veterinary College, which carried out the world first combination surgery to repair. A complex combination of heart defects in a dog. The reason why I was pausing, and I'm in an R in there, Mark. I was reading the the byline for this, saying eleven-year-old Lottie was born with several heart defects, and defects. And then it talks about a puppy, and saying it was eleven-month-old. So. Um, I presume they made a little typo there saying it was 11-month-old dog. Unless it's 11 years old now and they're reporting it 11 years later, Mark. I don't think so. Um, I think you're right. So they used a bit of Gore-Tex, Mark. They used a bit of Gore-Tex to patch up her single atrium that was divided um, using a, into two using a large patch of Gore-Tex. And they put her on the heart bypass machine for an hour and a half, Um so they had Poppy Bristow, a fellow in cardiothoracic surgery at the Royal Veterinary College, said 10 people were involved in her operation and many more for her care before and after the surgery, including veterinary specialists, veterinary nurses, and veterinary specialists in training, and as well as Lottie's referring cardiologist and her local veterinary practice. So um, that's my good news story. Um, and looking at an interesting thing is I was flicking around some of the different sites that reported this surgery and then I came across the Mirror in the UK, Mark, and their I little... I um, read the Mirror
0: quite regularly, Brendan.
1: The, um, the, yeah, um, this is a page four story um, in the Mirror and it reports the same thing and it was talking about how um, this... Dog underwent eye watering, a twelve thousand pound surgery at a at an eye watering cost of twelve thousand pounds, because she was born with a gaping hole in her heart that was going to give her a drastically shortened life expectancy. And it had lots of lots of um, exclamation marks in the article, Mark, and um, did have a few pictures of her owner and. Um, but it did say it was a very good um, result in the end, although looking through the comments that were made, um, yeah, I won't um, comment on the comments um, there from the from the mirror there, Mark. So, yeah, it's quite interesting seeing the way these things are reported, isn't it, Mark? Um, the report in the Royal College was quite clinical, as you'd expect, and the report in the mirror was quite sensational (laughs) as you would expect mark but it was a good result for little lottie the 11 month going on 11 year old um, dog that had the um, multiple defects of the heart repaired so good on them um, for doing that surgery i think we should jump into our main topic topic because we're already put half our audience to sleep mark because we're over half an hour into our podcast already and we we've usually finished with our with our drivel within the first 10 or 15 minutes and i um i do have another review i want to do mark but i won't do it this week (laughs) Mark. i'll put it off to next week so what are we going to talk about for our main topic mark
0: our main topic this week brendan is um uh is the problems that um, entire female ferrets get oestrogen um, toxicity and the the uh, the consequences of um, of not being dissexed and being kept alone? If you are a female ferret, if you are a jill, um, it's a um, it, it definitely when I first graduated. Um, I suppose around here in Newcastle, it was sort of a bit of a transition time when um, when ferrets were moving from a type of working animal who were used by um, people to hunt rabbits out of their uh, warrens um, uh, to they were moving towards a pet and. Of course, the people that kept them as rabbiting animals um, had some plans to either breed them or um, control the estrus by one method or another. But once people took them on as pets, they didn't realize that uh, there was a problem if they didn't get them dissexed. And so um, the ferrets would remain in estrus. Brendan, um, and it happened surprisingly regularly um, that we would be presented with a, a, uh, a ferret that was in trouble. How So how often do you see
1: ferrets in... Season mark that are running into trouble on uh, every year. Do 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 you see them very
0: often these days? Or not? Well, the numbers certainly dropped off dramatically, but we still would see probably half a dozen each year now. Um, I'd expect we'd probably see the
1: similar sort of numbers, Mark. So yeah, it's, it's it's certainly not rare. And and as you alluded, I think most of the people that that bring these ferrets in that are in that continuous heat, which we will chat about in more detail in a sec, uh, are new ferret owners, yeah, and they just do not realise the fact that if a female ferret comes into season, she needs to be brought out of season, doesn't she, Mark, or... Potentially, she's going to run into lots of trouble. So, and I've got bit, I suppose I was should...
0: just going to one of my world famous unvalidated um, uh, theories theories why this is persisting um, is that I think in America there's a company, Marshall Farms, who produce the vast majority of ferrets that are sold in the pet trade in America, and they're desexed on the farm at about six weeks of age. So. In the large amount of information that most ferret owners would view online, particularly the stuff that comes out of America, there is no um, talk of this problem because there is no ferrets that are intact in that population. So, I think that um, a a large number of new ferret owners who get online and get involved in uh, these communities of ferret owners um, um, they don't become aware of the potential problems of their, their ferret being. Um, entire Brendan yes so they end up with uh, adrenal disease
1: <laughs> instead don't they yes so the signs of this uh, uh, well, well my first comment would be that sometimes we see no signs with them um, apart from the obvious sign of a external signs of a Ferret being in season, a female ferret being in season is in large vulval area there, Mark. And I have seen some female ferrets that have been in continuous heat for months, Mark, and, and they don't show any untoward signs of illness with that, with them. Um, and they're, they're quite, they 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 quite may be coming in for a vaccination and a health check and the owner doesn't realise that they've been in, in continuous heat for that length of time. They may have purchased a ferret with the vulva swelling there. So one potential sign is no sign at all, Mark, but um, other, otherwise the classic history with these are that the female will be in a continuous heat. The high estradiol levels will potentially end up causing bone marrow suppression and anaemia. So we'll see the classic signs that we would with any animal with with anaemia. So we'll have a ferret presenting that's weak, um, that's obviously pale. Um, it has the vulval swelling, um, and some of them also show signs of alopecia as well. Mark, have you seen the alopecia? Uh, alopecia
0: ferrets that have the um, estrogen toxicity. We definitely do see um, that uh, hormonal alopecia and not probably only in, I don't know, one out of the six we see each year. Um, The vast majority of them, uh, Mm -hmm. we don't get any um, changes to the coat. Um, And I'm interested in your comments too, because they fit with our observations that um, that, individual ferrets seem to respond um differently we'll definitely see some ferrets that i don't know just maybe three or four weeks and they're critically anemic um and um and other ferrets as you said that might have been stuck in estrus for months six months and um and they're the only sign they show are those um you know a little bit of vulval swelling and uh and their PCV is okay. So um, it's not an automatic thing um, and it doesn't, because they've been going for several months, doesn't mean they're not just going to trip over into a problem in the next few weeks. Absolutely. So we do need to get
1: stuck into chatting to the client about the options of potentially... Treating it and and um, also preventing it if they have other ferrets that um, they will have in the future. So, what's your approach to them when they come in, Mark? Whether let, let's assume we have you have one co- come into your consultation room that is anaemic. It's looking a little bit seedy. It's weak. You peek at those gums there, and they're looking a tad pale there, Mark. What's your next step?
0: Well, my experience has been that. Doing anything dramatic to these ferrets, um, that uh, that if we were to go, oh, the thing has oestrogen tox, uh, estradiol toxicity, and we're going to have to desex it to save a life, um, that, well, is often catastrophic they um, the even those ones that might not have profound anemia it might just be a moderate anemia um, they definitely are metabolically unstable and they often have trouble with um, major interventions so generally speaking if we can detect that they're anemic um, we're going to try and stabilize them first before we take them to surgery and uh, and desex them and that stabilisation process, it probably um, is going to involve um, uh, the use of um, uh, probably uh, human chorionic gonadotropin is our first choice um, to uh, trigger the end of the, um, the estrus period, um, push them over into um uh, the post-Estrus part of their cycle um, and shut down the the uh, high levels of estradiol and give the ferret some period of time to build up its red cells again, Brandon?
1: Well, my choice would be fairly similar too, Mark. Um, I'd give that ferret an IM injection of the HCG and I'd repeat that in Probably one to two weeks if we're not starting to see signs of that valve swelling decrease and the, and the um, blood's bouncing back. Um, usually I'm just looking for the valve changes initially with them. Um, and a, and a large percentage of them just with that one injection will tend to, to, um, come out of the heat. Um, I don't know what your, your percentages are that just anecdotally off the top of my head. I'd have to look up the actual, the figures with them. Um, the other choice I often um, struggle with with the ones that are more severely anaemic. Uh, do I do a, a transfusion with those ones? And the the two difficulties I see there. Well, the main one is finding another ferret um, because we we don't have a a. Um, a, a clinic ferret mark and um often these clients are as i mentioned earlier um they new owners and they they may only have the one ferret so it's trying to access another ferret and um, as far as i know um it's safe to use a one soft transfusion without um doing any cross matching and that's what i typically do um and it's a bit of a pain to do it um that that um, process of doing the transfusion there and so it's making a decision whether we do that and the other decision I struggle with with the ones that are severely anemic Mark and I'd be interested in your thoughts is whether or not you just dive in and and um, take it to surgery so with or without the transfusion um, get it on some fluids and, and get in there and, and, and just spay it, desex it Mark do you ever do that? Um, I have done it
0: before Brendan but as I was saying before I've I- and probably it has more to do with um my poor technique or um the time that i take to do the surgery but i haven't had good results when um when we've gone in those ferrets that have pcvs in you know less than 15 um i i, I have lots of them that have trouble with when i was doing the surgery on them regularly i have lots of them that uh that have trouble and it's funny that um that uh, I agree with you. The vast majority of ferrets that we treat with uh, Coralon, uh, human chorionic um, a single injection starts to, you know, changes the circumstance, and um, and uh, um, a second injection. Sweeps up quite a lot of the rest, but there is a very small percentage of them that the coraline doesn't work, and they are profoundly anemic. and um, And uh, you are tempted to go in, and you're not going to shut the system down with uh, hormones. and um, And you you are tempted to go in and do the surgery to completely attack the problem at its source. Um, I just I I can't say that I've been over. over overjoyed with the results of, um, of that tactic, and so now I tend to um, to depend more on the transfusion. As you said, we don't have to cross-match them. They are fiddly. I always um, admire um, those clinicians like yourself, Brendan, that have no trouble accessing the Ferret venous system to draw some blood out. I always have no end of trouble jabbing them multiple times in the neck and only seeming to get into that fat pad and all the other tissue around the base of the neck and never hitting the jugular. But when you do get a lovely sample of blood, um, particularly if the ferrets are anaesthetised, they tend to dump all their red cells out of their spleen under the effects of isoflurane, and so transfusing that blood often makes a profound difference to the um, the ferret that's suffering the estrogen toxicity. Yes. Do you have,
1: going back one step, do you ever have uh, ferret owners suggesting that they manually or physically try and bring that ferret out of season?
0: Um, yeah, definitely. We, it was a standard, the standard thing for most um, ferret owners who use them for rabbiting. Was to have a um, a de-sexed male. Um, what's that? A de-sexed hob is a. Anyway, a
1: de-sexed. <laughs> oh <got blank> two. <laughs> um Well, the other, the other, um, and what I was hinting at is is a more brutal method. Have you heard of a ballpoint um, pen technique? Um, yeah, oh, we're not that brutal. I mean, I've had some, um, we're, we're not that brutal down in Melbourne, Mark. Um, we, we'd be, the, the, um, people who were using the manual technique would be using some Q-tips or cotton buds, um, to manually stimulate the, the female reproductive tract to try and bring them out of season. But um, I don't think it's a very nice way to do it. And I think, yeah, using a vasectomised male would certainly be the way to go. And I have had the odd request to vasectomize a male um ferret. And um yeah, it's a fun little surgery. I don't know whether you've done any of those, Mark, have you?
0: we haven't done many vasectomies across many species, but we have done a couple of ferrets. And it is a nifty little um exercise in in relatively in, in in a relatively small surgical field.
1: Yeah, so that's the other option. So having having that um infertile or um, male um, mating um, with her and I, I think part of that process of, of bringing her out of the hate period is is not just physically um, entering that female but also um the the, the way the male grabs that female around the neck area mark and they're pretty rough aren't they when they mate um that that female there and I think it sort of have to be that the failures with that sort of manual stimulation that um um some people use um when they're not using a a vasectomized um is is because I think it's not um, um, having that effect of grabbing and, and that formatting episode that, that um, occurs to bring her out
0: of the season. I just there. want to reiterate, so, and that I've never used a ballpoint pen. That was a, <laughs> <laughs> said to me by one of the ferret owners when I first graduated. Yes. And, um, uh, and I blanched suitably at the suggestion and, um, yep,
1: and um i i just had a horrible vision there mark um when i visited your clinic i was i have a habit of chewing on ballpoint pens and um um i've got a very bitter taste in my mouth at the moment mark so yes um thanks for clarifying that so let's t- so so basically we we assess we try and keep the animal alive as usual um regardless of species so um we work out we take out blood so we work out how anemic this this female ferret that is in continuous estrus that's been brought into the clinic um, whether or not we need to provide a transfusion and if not um, we use our medical methods of bringing them off um, or out of season and the the one that you and I both use the HCG um, Coralon is uh, the um, brand name product that we use here in Australia and I think it's used um, in a large percentage of the world have, have, you, have you tried and I had somebody ask me this the other day, Mark, and this is one of the reasons why I put this on the topic for t- for this week. Um, have you um, just given them the preventative um, method, the prevention, the supralorin or the desloren implant, and um, seen whether or not that on, on its own is enough to bring it out of the heat period?
0: Yes, well, I have had a, a, a couple of ferrets now, particularly ones where the um, PCV is still above 15 um, but they're anemic and in estrus. Where we do give them a um, an implant, and we watch them, and we have had success at um, at uh, getting them out of estrus and seeing the uh, PCV rise. So I think it's um it's not a clear cut thing, and and uh, I do think you have to look at each individual ferret and the stage at which they're at, and you've got to be aware that it's not a linear response. It's that uh, that on certain occasions it'll just be, you know, a few days and all of a sudden the, the uh, PCV will plummet. Um, and so if you happen to give put the implant in at, uh, at you know, just a few days before that's going to happen, um, you're not going to get the immediate suppression of estrogen and you still can have a problem. So monitoring afterwards, I think, is absolutely critical.
1: Yes, and I think the person that I was just trying to pull up the email there as you're speaking, Mark, and I can't find it um, with that brief brief search. But the same person asked me the question: Do I ever see ferrets that are implanted? Um, and these may be ferrets that are not in the continuous heat period um do i see signs of them going into a heat period um being induced into a heat period for a short period of time after i've given the implant to them and i must admit i can't recall that occurring have you seen that mark um implanting the female ferrets that are not in season inducing a, a a
0: a um Short-lived season um, in that animal. Um, it's a no. The short answer to that question is I have not. It is a because uh, deslorelin is a um, is a gonadotrophin agonist. Um, uh, it should uh, mimic the action of the gonadotrophins and cause a rise in the the um, in the uh, uh, sex the sex hormones. Um, uh, for a very short period of time before the powerful feedback loop and stimulation of the partial agonist causes the whole system to shut down. Um, but while that's a theoretical um, uh, problem with uh, deslorelin and probably luprolide as well, um, it's not something that I can clinically say um, that we see regularly Um, There are occasions where, particularly macaws, I've had a couple of macaws that um, have, uh, um, you know, have shown reproductive behaviour for 24 or 36 hours after an implant. Um, But in ferrets, I can't say that that's a feature of um, implantation that I recognise. Yes, and I
1: I, I must admit, I've either seen it but not recognised it, um, or I have not recognised or seen it at all, um, if that makes sense. So no, my answer is no, I've not um, experienced that um, in the ferrets that I have seen. So prevention, Mark. So what's your recommendations to prevent this? And this is getting back to what we've mentioned a few times in in previous podcasts. So what's your standard Method of um, stopping
0: this occurring in your ferrets that you cut them, Brendan. We cut them open and take their reproductive tract out, and we do it precisely at six months of age.
1: Right on six months, no later, no earlier. Right on six months, no later, no earlier. So, um, you may want to mention why we don't do that at an earlier age um, for for those who have not listened to our previous podcast. Well, there's.
0: significant amount of evidence that um, the absence of the sex steroids through the first uh, six months of a ferret's life will predispose them um, to adrenal disease. The, um, the presence of the sex steroids up until puberty in ferrets seems to have, uh, um, I don't know, what you would call it, a maturity uh, inhibition um, some effect on those cells in the adrenal gland, which uh, would secrete uh, the small number of cells that would secrete some sex steroids, which encourages them to uh, develop um, neoplastic characteristics as the ferret grows up. So in an attempt to limit the possibility that that happens, we don't dissect them Young. And that's, you know, you alluded to it before, the whole process of uh, desexing the Marshall Farm ferrets at six weeks of age in the US has really created a, an epidemic of um, adrenal disease in those ferrets in the US. Um, and uh, we would do quite a lot to um, uh, hopefully prevent that happening to most ferrets in Australia. Yes, and I'm fairly
1: sim- similar in my practice, Mark. Most of them we will take to surgery and, and physically de-sex them, although there are a few, a bit of an increase in um, clients who are reluctant to physically, to have their have their ferret physically desec. So we will go down the, the track of using an implant and then maybe revisiting that. Um, in 12 months or so and then deciding will we just keep implanting this ferret every every six to 24 months or so, depending on how how we think it's going with the implant, or we jump in there and we physically desex it. Um, And I think there are an increasing number of exotics exotic clinics who are going down the track of just using the implants, Mark. Um, have you have you um, heard on the grapevine about certainly that,
0: that is regularly talked about at our um, conferences. The increasing number of uh, people who are happy to um, you know pay that significant amount once every um, twelve or twenty four months. We're probably getting most of the time, and um, and yeah. Um, I think that will be an increasing thing that people who see ferrets are asked to consider, um, that they uh, provide an implant now and review the animal regularly. Yeah,
1: and I think longer term, the the jury's out. We don't have the statistics as far as I know anyway, and there may be something out there long term. Studies or, or papers uh, demonstrating that there's no concern with leaving the reproductive tract in those ones that are having implants uh, continuously or, or, or subsequently, and, and whether or not we have any reproductive issues in those in those patients down the track. So, whether or not we have a have an increased chance of pyometra or, or other reproductive disease in the ones where we haven't um, cut out that uterus and ovaries in them. So. We'll see what happens down the track, Mark, but I, I think it's potentially a, a valid way to go just with the implants there and, and I think they, with some of these ones that I've done, the limited ones I've implanted, these female ferrets and uh, Thai ferrets that they implant can potentially last well beyond the 12 months um, that... Um, Typically, we talk about it at
0: last info. Brendan, I've got a bit of a question for you because I regularly get um, telephone calls, inquiries from um, ferret owners, particularly ferret owners that you know we don't see regularly, who are asking me to provide them with um, uh, covenin injections for their ferrets to prevent this problem. Do you get the the same request? And if you do, what do you tell them? I tell them to
1: go away, or we're just going to go with the HCG. Yeah, um, it. I think it is commonly used as a uh, method to bring them out of season for um, overseas, and I think in the UK, if I'm not um, United Kingdom, if I'm not, uh, I'm not mistaken, and um, it's mentioned has been mentioned for for decades i think in the literature um, and it works um, but my concern is there has has definitely been some reports that it will potentially increase the chance of reproductive issues with them um, such as pyometra have been reported with with the use of that if if that's what you're sort of if that's the loaded question you were giving me mark um, well, so it my, loaded, my usual... I was trying
0: to lead you to a you know an explanation,
1: <laughs> a conclusion, or an explanation. Well, that's them's my thoughts, Mark. Um, I'd I'd be saying no. Um, I'd I'd prefer we do not give that particular drug to your ferret because I'd be worried about the side effects with it compared with the side effects of using a Desloran implant. Is much less. Would be my answer. And then I never see them again. They go somewhere else and get the combined <laughs>
0: injection, Mark. And it's exactly the same. Do you get... Exactly. Okay. Even down to them not coming to see us ever again, it's precisely the same at our hospital. Um, it is. We we uh, um, There does seem to be a, a cohort of veterinarians who are happy to um, provide this progestogen, uh, synthetic progestogen to... Uh, for the purpose of um, taking them off season, um, but it uh, but it is loaded with you know several orders of magnitude more likelihood of side effects, and uh, as you said, some of those side effects are are, um, are potentially um, life threatening, um, and uh, and I I can't um, in all conscience justify its use in this circumstance where we have resources like HCG and and uh, Yes. And I, and I think part of the issue
1: there is it's still mentioned in a lot of the textbooks, even the current, um, or recent, fairly current textbooks about a potential method to bring them out of heat. So, yeah, I I think it should, there should be a real, a real disclaimer put in the, um, in the publications regarding that. Um, because, yeah, it's probably not best practice, as you mentioned, Mark. So. Yeah, so that's, um, well, we've taken up another hour, Mark. There you go. Um, and we thought it was only going to take 10 minutes to talk about estrus and, and the problems of, um, ferrets in season, Mark. But as usual, we've, um, prattled on longer than we, um, we should, or maybe not long enough, according to a couple of our listeners who, who say they'd like to listen to us talk all night because apparently, um, we put them to sleep and they like listening to our, our mono, monotonous voices, Mark. Um, they love our monotones um, because it's, it's almost meditative, isn't it? Listen to us because we're so boring sometimes, aren't we, Mark? But we should get out of here. I think we should get out of here and um, talk to everybody next week because the outro man's jumped in. So we've got to go. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.